greetings this evening in Jesus' precious name. Originally, this service was to land between Mother's Day and Father's Day, and so that kind of shaped my thoughts a little bit. Um, all of us here, no, let me start this way. Some of us here are parents, and as I look at the crowd, there are quite a number of children for which we are very blessed. And all of us have parents. Um, in our house, down in the basement, in one of our girls' rooms on the wall is a little plaque that says, as far as everyone else knows, we are a normal family. You can take that a couple ways, but I would say this, I think all of our families are somewhat normal. Uh, my wife and I were privileged to grow up in normal, locally, godly families. And uh, I guess I'm like sure when I don't want to say my age, but the more, the more people around and the more stories I read and the more you're aware of world happenings, our families are not normal, they're above normal, they're above average. There are many people that can't say they have godly parents or they don't even know for sure about their parents. And so what I share this evening is um, the background is that we're blessed and that we want to do a good job being parents and generally in our culture and our society, families stay together and that's a great thing for children. I do have seven little snapshots from the Bible. Read the Bible. Does it seem to you like a storybook? Do you identify with the characters? And if so, which ones? Do you put themselves, yourself in their shoes? Um, so let's just take seven little snapshots from the Bible. But while you're thinking about these stories, think about the fact that these are real people, just like us. I mean, I know it was a long time ago and kind of far away, but with real children who, who acted like children and they... Um, they were real families in real neighborhoods, and so you have those pressures and those influences happening, and that we don't usually think about it. We kind of isolate just this little story, but there's a bigger picture. So let's go to Judges 13. We'll kind of move chronologically here, maybe not perfectly, but in general. I don't even know if we'll even turn to all these, but out of each little snapshot, I want to present something that I think we can benefit from, something we can learn from. Uh, in Judges 13, we have a man and his wife, childless. Um, interesting that the angel, they had been praying, it seems, for children. The angel came to the lady. And so she excitedly tells her husband about this. And I really like his response. Manoah is rather unknown in Scripture. Um, in fact, maybe there's not many Bible stories about Manoah, but maybe there should be. Judges 13, verse 8, I like his prayer. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And I'm skipping now to verse 12. Manoah again said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? It's a question. 
Manoah was asking God for direction. And so God blessed them with a child, this promised child. Um, that was an answer to their prayer. But Manoah's, you might have said, well, he, you know, he should have been extremely thankful. But it seems like his heart was not only thankful, but it was um, discerning and eager because he sensed there was something for him to do as a father. And so he was wanting to know what his job description was. Uh, perhaps he sensed that because the child came later in life, perhaps because they prayed about this, perhaps because the angel came. But at any rate, his burden was not so much a thankful, it was that, but what shall we do with this boy? Well, you know that the boy was Samson. And um, I don't know, Samson is kind of, what do you say, an enigma to us and New Testament believers. Um, they were not to intermarry with the Philistines, but Samson did, and it bothered, it not bothered, it concerned his parents deeply. I, I would have been concerned. And, um, and yet it says it was of the Lord, because God was using this to bring about deliverance for his people through Samson. And I would say Samson was um, certainly not perfect, and a lot of that I can't understand exactly. I think being a parent of Samson would have been difficult. Maybe the dad was realizing that before he was even born, that there would be difficulty there with this man. I don't know how Samson's parents felt or if they were even around um, to see his mighty victories, his stunning defeats, his cruel treatment. Um, but there were parents behind Samson who were concerned about their child and I'm blessed by that. This is kind of personal, but someone at Strasburg recently said in prayer meeting, they said that they, they were asking for prayer. And they said that when our children were younger, we thought we were okay parents. But now that they're teenagers, we don't think we're okay parents. I appreciate that kind of frankness, um, that kind of honesty. I'm not sure I said the exact words that he said, but... His heart was the fact that parenting changes from children to teenagers. They were working through that, and I would certainly bless that man because I think he's doing a good job, better than he would probably take credit for with the Lord's help. Let's go now to uh, 1 Samuel. This is the second snapshot. It's the story of Hannah. You know it well. I won't read much here. But you remember that Hannah was praying, again, a childless couple, Praying for a child, the lady seems to have, um, I say a, a childless lady, I should say, praying for a child. And um, you remember that Eli mistook her for a drunken lady, and yet um, her prayer was sincere. I'm blessed with a couple things here. Um, again, we have the theme of prayer. This is in 1 Samuel 1, verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So I want to say that while Hannah and Samuel are kind of main characters again, behind them is this Elkanah, I think a godly man, uh, with a solid uh, practice of going up to worship. And so that was just part of this thing. That enabled Hannah to offer this prayer at the temple, which she did. And that was the interaction with Eli. And then again, um, they would go and offer 
And I might just notice in verse 24, um, it seemed that this man was generous, or maybe this couple was generous. Um, they took up three bulls, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, um, and the child was young. They slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, talking to Eli, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by here, you, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I ask of him. And so she's, she did have this child, and um, his word came to pass. He had issued a, a blessing on her prayer after he understood that he had misunderstood. I'm really blessed um, with the sacrifice there, but there's also a sacrifice in verse 28 that I think um, is more significant than what all they brought. In verse 28, she says, Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. We don't do this exactly, at least not with young children, quite like she did, maybe with our teens and young marrieds, sending them out. Notice chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Samuel 2, verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Skipping to verse 17. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child wearing a linen ephod. I'm just going to say that there's a lot of trust there. If you have a little child, uh, picture taking them to a what should have been a place of worship in the most godly place in the country, but it was actually a wicked place. And I would just say that, unfortunately, Eli had failed as a father. His, parent, um, his parenting was not, it did not yield good results. I can't speak to his parenting, but the results was not good. And so I just can hardly imagine this mother and father leaving this precious little boy there under Eli's guardianship with such a poor record. Um, and yet, they were freely lending. There was a heart of gratitude. There was a sense of our children. I think Brother Sherwin mentioned this. Our children are not ours. They're the Lord's for his work. And they wanted to leave their son there. They had lent him to the Lord. Of course, we know the story turned out well. But how would you have known in the moment at the time that how that would work out? Also really blessed with verse 19 and 20. This touches my heart, but um, notice the little gift here. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And so I can just picture, this is about as close as I've ever noticed in the Bible of a, an annual gift. I don't know that it was a birthday gift necessarily, but it came at a regular yearly interval, the time of the feast. I think the little boy anticipated it greatly. Mom and dad were coming. Mom and dad had a relationship with the priest, Eli, that wasn't there before. And I think the, um, 
the parents could hardly wait to see their little boy either. I don't think it was just a, you know, a travel from here to Dayton or here to Montezuma. It was a distance, Ramah to Jerusalem. And I can just kind of picture the mom thinking in her mind, well, I wonder how much he's grown. You know, last year he was pretty little. He probably hit a growth spurt this time. And so she makes his coat a little extra big because it needs to fit now and for the next year. And I think there was a lot of effort put into that. Parenting, one joy of parenting is giving gifts to children. They're always super appreciative of whatever they receive. It's a part of parenting, giving gifts to children. I'll probably just make one more note about this thing of, of lending him to the Lord. Um, When our children start transitioning into upper teens and 20s and they start talking about going and doing this or that, um, maybe they're considering a place of voluntary service. Maybe they're thinking about teaching school. I don't know why school boards reach so far and wide for such young people, but they do. And, um, they, and parents, I'm talking now as a parent of a teenager, teenagers, um, we sometimes wonder about this. We feel like we've done the best we knew at the time, and yet um, these children are kind of going out on their own. And um, we don't want to be, I think the word is helicopter parents, hovering with a drone over our little people wherever they go. Um, and yet we want to trust them and we want to be responsible. Um, you know, you'll have to decide as a family if it's okay for your daughter to drive to Georgia by herself with or without a cell phone. Um, you'll have to decide at what, how young of an age is it okay for them to go for a month or a year of service or however that all might be. But anyway, it's a process of lending them to the Lord. And the apron strings get stretched and it hurts a little bit, but it's for a good purpose. And my parents were, I think, generous with allowing me to go and do different things. And I have said, I guess publicly before, that as scary as some things are, like volunteers in Haiti getting kidnapped, so there's rebels and there's kidnappers and there's diseases, like in Africa, um, HIV infection is really high. And there's a host of other things, but sometimes scariest of all is those dashing young men and intriguing young ladies that they'll be interacting with. And you start realizing that, you know, there's interest there, and you're wondering how all this will be. Well, we can lend them to the Lord as we were lent to the Lord ourselves and trust him to guard them like the God of Samuel guarded him. And look at what he was able to do as a man of God. Okay, let's go thirdly, third little snapshot to Joseph. This is Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. It's in Matthew. I noticed this recently. Joseph is, again, a bit of a silent, strong character in the Bible. There is not but so much about him. You'll read more of Mary and much more of his son, Jesus his son, his stepson, you might say. I just really am blessed by, okay, so God carefully chose parents for his son. And out of all of the people, he prepared these two, and these two were willing. 
Joseph and Mary, and we can put them on a pedestal, and we shouldn't. They were real people with real desires and real needs, and Mary had a strong sense of whatever God wants me to do, I will do it. When she said that, she may not have fully realized the difficulty that lay ahead. And I picture Joseph, I don't know why I think this, as maybe older than her. He certainly seems solid. Um, he seems obedient to the, to the immediate nth degree, which I really admire. I notice that especially in Matthew 1, verse 19. Maybe I should start at verse 18. So these are real people in a real dating and engagement relationship. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I'll also read verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And so that would have been a hard one. Um, I mean, people can say anything, but facts are facts, we would say. And so there was this young couple who experienced a, a stressful thing, and they were willing to submit. And I, I really appreciate that Joseph, while he was probably crushed, was gentle and thoughtful. You know how it is sometimes when something just hits you so hard, so broadside, you are ready to drop the hammer and walk away immediately. And uh, maybe even in parenting sometimes, we can make a quick judgment and stand on it like concrete. Uh, Joseph took some time to ponder this, and in that interval between when he knew the problem and he acted, God intervened. And that's a blessing. Abraham experienced the same thing with offering his son Isaac. Um, but between the willingness and the act of obedience, God intervened in that thing. And so, and Joseph did exactly what the angel said. They became man and wife, and Jesus was then later born. I have a feeling, and we know from reading the Gospels, that there were plenty of people that thought otherwise. And so Joseph's reputation took a hard hit, so did Mary's, but they continued on. I also want to notice something else about Joseph. This is in 124. No, one, I'm sorry. Let's go to 213. So remember the child was born. There were the angels, the shepherds, um, probably the wise men in that interval. And then Herod heard of all this and was out to destroy this child. And so again, in 213, Joseph is visited by an angel saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. If you sing um, Bethlehem Cantata, you can hear those words in music. Um, but so they just left. I mean, a young couple with a child, refugees, went down to Egypt. I don't know if they knew anybody there. You might as well have went to, I don't know, 
Bolivia and showed up there with a man and his wife and a child. And uh, I don't know what economic burden that was. I don't know what people thought. Maybe people back in Nazareth realized that this young couple had escaped with the child. Probably people in Egypt had no idea. And so they were there in Egypt. I don't know what he did down in Egypt. But it was for a time. And then in 219, when Herod was dead, which is interesting, he was trying to kill all these young children and did, but he himself died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. It's just immediate obedience. A dream at night, an instant life-saving move to Egypt, another dream, a revelation, and back they come where they started or somewhere near where they started. And so, I don't know, what do you think of just a young couple traveling around with a child? They probably didn't have an RV. Um, they just showed up, and there they were back. When they came into Nazareth again or that area, did people realize that God had protected this child? Did they know what all would happen? Probably some did, many didn't. Um, and they probably lived with some stigma the rest of their lives that, you know, they just were flighty. Young couple that had poor morality, not knowing that they were submitted to God's will and that they were doing the best they could. We'll skip forward about 12 years or 10 years or so and go to Luke chapter 2, our fourth snapshot, um, again, of Jesus and his parents. I think this one we can identify with a little bit. Um, I'm blessed that they regularly went to 41. Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom. When they had finished the days, they returned. The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. I will not ask for a raise of hands of how many of you parents have left a child somewhere. We have. And that's sad. It's sad for the child. It's hard on the parents. Um, we live in an age of, you know, you kind of wonder about abductions and all kinds of things. Um, I have a good friend who woke up in the night to, to discover there were a man or men in their house um, in the dark. And um, that story turned out okay, but still they didn't know what they had in mind. And so there they are. They had went to church, if you will. They had worshipped. They had done this before many times. And they were on the way home, and it says three days. And so I think they had, um, they did have family, or they had acquaintances. It said they sought him among their family and acquaintances. It must have been a large group of people traveling together. And, um, you know, Mary probably said, well, I thought he was with your family. No. And Joseph said, well, the last time I saw him, he was so-and-so, but he's probably with his cousins. And you know how these things go, and so you check that, and you come back, and um, you're sure hoping that the other person found, and they didn't. And, um, well, it, as it turned out, the last place they had seen him was at the temple. And here's just a little thing for you children, and as if you're ever lost or left... Our son Jonathan's on the search and rescue, so these things are fresh on my mind. Stay where you are until you're found. It's so much easier to find a person that stops and stays than to find a person that continues to move. Like, let's say a group searched this area, 
and you weren't there. You were over here. But the next day, you decided to move over here. And then the search group searches this area, and 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 then they decide to go back home. Well, you're there, but how can they find you? And so just stay where you are, like Jesus did at the temple. He was still there, and they found him, the last place they saw him. And that's what we always say at home, it's always in the last place you look. And so there he was. And he was, I think, doing right. It was kind of a painful transition between Jesus' earthly father and his heavenly father. You can read that in verse 48. And let's see, Brother Sherwin said that his parents have made mistakes, and all of us can probably think of something our parents said at one point or the other that wasn't correct. But here's one that Mary said that wasn't quite correct. As good as she was, she was not a saint. In 48, and so when they saw him, they were amazed. And I think that word amazed carries a good bit more emotion than we would put into it. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. So she was there with Joseph, and she was the spokesman, and she chided Jesus for what he had done. And I think 49 is one of the most gentle rebukes I've ever heard, and it is from a 12-year-old, and I know what it's like to have a child tell me the truth or straighten me out on something. It can be humbling, but it is true. They sometimes know more than we think they do. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So Jesus said, basically in essence, my father is not Joseph. Like you said, Mary, my father is God. And I've been in his house, and he knows exactly where I am all the time. But I kind of feel bad for Joseph. He was doing his job as a father, looking for his son, his, his stepson. And in verse 51, just to close that story, sometimes when children tell parents something and they're right, they can get a little bit big britches about it. Well, I told, look what I told Dad. But notice 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Well, that's a blessing. So even if he was right and Joseph was wrong and Mary was wrong, he knew how to submit and to obey. I don't know how parenting Jesus would have been. Can you just imagine that? I think having a perfect child might be harder than having a normal child. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know how this thing with Jesus and his brothers and sisters worked out. Did they scrap? Did they... Was he the goody-goody? Um, what were the family dynamics like? And I can just picture Joseph and Mary with information in their minds, settling some family things, but you can't be totally fair if one child is perfect and the rest aren't. And so I don't know how that worked exactly, but I'm glad that they did well. Let's go to the fifth snapshot. This is just much later in Jesus' life. It's in John 19. I will just say that I think Mary, Mary would have had to have emotional highs and lows with her son 
Remember at the wedding when they ran out of wine and they asked Mary about it, or she weighed in and she said, just find Jesus and do whatever he says. She had confidence in her son, and he rewarded that confidence with a miracle. And then Jesus became quite popular for three years. And I think being a parent of a popular person would probably be a popular thing in some respects. And then this tide turned in the last week. It was building up, but in the last week of Jesus' life, being a parent of a criminal would be difficult. And so at the end of his life, John 19, 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And so you take from that that Joseph has passed away and that Mary is as close as she can be to her dying son who is, I guess she was safe there at some level because maybe they wouldn't have criminalized mothers for wanting to be with their children, but I don't know, I just it's a touching thing of four ladies and John and, and the mocking crowd, but there's the family gathered around the dying man who is being treated so horribly. And Jesus, in his agony, reaches out to his mother I think as the oldest son, he felt some responsibility in their culture, and he should have. And he speaks to her as in, it seems, it seems like he's not talking about himself, woman, behold your son, but maybe about John standing there. And then he says to John, behold your mother, as if he is giving these two key people to each other for protection, for care, for whatever they may need and so Mary um, seems to be a widow but she, Jesus made sure she was well provided for or the best he could you might say there in that situation what can we learn from that snapshot well that parenting can be painful um, parenting can have unexpected outcomes and strange and unique turns and um, through it all there's God and there's unknown things and God's will and plan that we submit to. Okay, let's go to number six, Luke 15. You know this story very well. It's Jesus himself speaking about the prodigal son. This message would not be complete without at least touching here. Uh, I don't know, as you read this, you know, my focus kind of goes to the, the, the man, the man's boy who the prodigal son, I mean, that's what the story is about. The son that had, I, I don't know, did the father enable in your mind? If you have a greedy child who just wants life handed to him on a silver platter, is it good? Give him half the farm, send him out. Maybe, the, uh, honestly, maybe the father realized that it's better. It could have been better that a dissatisfied son go away from the family than stay if his heart wasn't there I'm not sure but this story is touching as well and so this young man uh, he was he went out of course it didn't go as he thought it would it was a painful realization that life away from home was miserable um, he 
came to himself through circumstances. Um, let's see, this story was mentioned. It was used in youth conference. Um, and like the brother there said, he had this line that he was saying, I'm, I'm going to go home and say, I have sinned. He practiced it. He thought it through. He was coming home. And um, I won't necessarily read the story, but when he was a long way off, it says, his father saw him. And the only way a father can see a child a long way off is to be looking. And uh, there are just so many times that this story plays out. People we know, you can read about it in books like Weeping for Abigail. You probably know people, sons and daughters that this has happened to. Unfortunately, not all stories happened to turn out as well as this one. I'm focusing kind of on the dad here. The dad had a delicate situation on his hand. First, when the son wanted to leave, and he let him do that. But when the son came back, his response was so generous, so heartfelt, so loving to his, really, this, this young man uh, was... Yeah, he did not do well at all. But I'd like to focus, too, on the second problem he had. This comes in verse 25. So parenting can have its highs and lows. Uh, the low is when the son leaves and doesn't come back. The high is when he returns, and there's going to be a feast, and things are good, and there's one big happy family, and things are going well, and the father and the son have been reunited, and they love each other, and the past is the past, and the young man is home. But that story is marred by 25, 15-25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and wouldn't. Well, that's an unlikely turn of events. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said, Son, you are always me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should be merry, make merry, and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So... Unfortunately, the father gained a son and lost a son, and that is where the story ends. And I don't know what happened after that. Um, there was a poor attitude on the older son's part. He may have had a point, and that is that we as parents can easily focus on the problem child, the difficult things, the things that we need to see change, the things we want to change, all the corrections we want to make, and we may have children that are doing quite well, and we fail to encourage them. We just fail to tell them, son, you're doing well, and I appreciate it. Usually, because we're tired or limited, we tend to save our words for the corrections that they need, we think. And I'm not saying that this father did that. I'm just saying it's a general tendency 
that we struggle with. And I doubt if it was as good as he said as far as never transgressing. Never is always a strong word. Um, and probably it wasn't quite as bad as he let on as far as not having time with his friends. But his perspective was, it's not fair. And I, it's not fair is a hard thing to work on and a hard thing to get hold of. And I don't know how you feel, but my heart just goes out to this father. Like, it, it would be hard to be happy for a son that's back if you know you've just lost another one. And I hope that that prodigal son, the second prodigal son, had the same experience as the first and came to himself and came back, but we don't necessarily know that. Parenting can be um, difficult. I would commend this father for doing what he could. He reached out. He tried to win his older son back. He tried to reason with him gently. His words were not strong words. They were gentle and generous words. And he received the other prodigal back. And the older son, if he left, had to remember in his mind that if I go back, I'll probably be treated like my younger brother was. Um, it had to stay there. And I hope he did. Okay, seventh, let's go to the New Testament a little further here. Second Timothy 1. This is a little different kind of parenting. Um, whether, well, let me just say it this way. So whether Paul was married or not, I don't know. It's not mentioned. But he has these spiritual children, Timothy and Titus. But in Timothy 1, verse 5, Paul is talking about this Timothy young man. Um, and he says... Just a commendation there, a comment on Timothy's life. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. And so he's telling Timothy, I'm, I'm commending you for your faith, your genuine faith, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded, is in you also. And so Paul is actually, as an older man, and this happens, you know, we meet these young people, they stand up here for chorus or whatever, they say their names, meaningless to me. I want to know who their mom and dad are, I want to know who their grandparents are, so I know where they fit. Um, and Paul, as an older man, taking to Timothy, he's talking about his grandmother. And he's saying, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice were good examples. They, I believe, were believers. And Paul was tracing Timothy's success kind of back to his mom and back to his grandmother, the Christian faith being passed on. And if you want a little more commentary on this, in Acts 16.1, we have this little tiny piece. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Well, just because his father was Greek doesn't say if he was a Christian Greek or not, except the word but there is there, and so you tend to get the feeling that maybe his father wasn't a Jew. It wasn't a Jew for sure, but wasn't maybe a practicing Jew or wasn't a practicing Christian. I don't know, but Paul is saying that, that young people are influenced by even one parent, even one grandparent. And I was blessed by that. Our, not all homes are perfect. We know that. But there is Christian faith passed on from a grandmother to a daughter to a son. It even jumped from 
female to a son. Um, and look at what Timothy did in his work in the church and what a blessing he was to Paul. You know, too, that one time when Paul wanted to go on a trip, um, wasn't it Timothy that he was not inclined to take along? I'm not sure how that was, but later it seems that Paul uh, really appreciated Timothy and the work that he did. I would like to close with just two thoughts. So, as we think about parents and parenting, Jesus real father, I can say it this way, Jesus' real father was God. And in his most difficult moment there in the garden, he said this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so he was submitting to his father's will. But I really appreciate that, Abba, Father, uh, that word is an expression of tenderness, familiarity, and confidence between a child and a father. And for Jesus to call his father Abba, Father, I think speaks deeply of the relationship he had with his heavenly father. And then I noticed in Romans 8, verse 15, Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so like Jesus did, we can do. He is also our Father. And his parenting has its turns, its new horizons. Children are always given to untrained people, aren't they? especially first children. And so parenting molds and shapes the parent and often drives us to our knees and we cry out, Abba, Father. And then even as we release them as arrows going far beyond what we could ever do in life, teens, 20s, again, I think we cry out, take care of them. Bless their work and their service. And uh, this little line has been used for, I think, a book title, maybe a series, um, but I'll use it here too. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth.